specific New Testament word. If you're like me, we do lots of searches online. And a very funny and to the point commercial is uh, this, this Bing search overload series of commercials where people type in a word and they, they really get more than they're, than they're looking for. In one commercial, a daughter asked her dad if he had found her a new cell phone. And this is the dad. He, he replies like a robot, uh, going from one random topic to another because he's, he's looked for his new daughter's cell phone on the web and he was taken to the history of the cell phone and then he was taken to the history of the telephone pole and then the unrelated pole cat. Uh, Martin Bryan of Is Thought, it's a UK website, says that this, this semantic web string theory, that's, that's, what, uh, that's what Bing is trying to overcome, is that semantic web string, uh, must change because words have more than one meaning. I typed into the Bing search engine, how do we understand words? That's what I wanted to know. How do we understand words? Hoping for a list that I could check off for you tonight. And that's how I found Brian's article. He did not have the list I was looking for. No one did. I could not find it anywhere. I had to think of that myself. So I'm going to give you a list here in just a minute of how we understand words. But he did have a fascinating take on words that we can use to define our New Testament word today and, and any word that we come across. Mr. Bryan said, far too many of the world's problems are caused by the fact that we insist on applying our own meaning to words rather than the meaning assigned to them by their originators. He says that many say we should define concepts and not worry about the terms used to identify them. But in language, he says, words do not have a single meaning. And they represent multiple concepts. And that the more meanings a word has, the more subtle are the concepts. And it can be used to express these more subtle concepts. Uh, He writes, It's often the shortest and most commonly used words that have the most meanings. In English, the word run is probably the best example with over 40 distinct meanings for the word run, for the verb and noun. He says, I am running a computer program to record the words that are running around in my head. Perhaps I should be out for a run around the block or spend my time running a business. I could run for parliament in the next elections, run my enemies to the ground, run my friends around the bend, or simply run into a brick wall trying to explain why one meaning is not going to suffice for the word run. At a more allegorical level, the running water in the stream running past my house could be running red with blood from the running sore of pollution that blights modern society. I could run on and on, but you would soon run out of patience with my attempts to run through the alternatives. Suffice it to say, you get my meaning. Analogy and context are a must. And in general, we cannot assign meanings to words that make up a sentence until we know the subject that they are concerned with. And and people break this language rule all the time, especially in religion. 
For example, and this is not our New Testament word for the night, but for example, pastor. How many have called me the pastor of Fountainhead? I'd like to have a dollar for every time that I've been called the pastor of Fountainhead, of which I am not. Folks have a concept of a church leader, but they wrongly apply the New Testament word pastor to mean preacher. Our New Testament word tonight is a misunderstood word, and failure to understand this word has been fatal to many a person throughout history. We must understand this word. Our New Testament word tonight is grace. Again, back to my original semantic web string uh, question that I posed. Uh, assuming that a person has the ability to communicate, how do we understand words? The way I understand words are several. We can understand words by their definition, by their etymology, their, their history. We can understand words by even going back to their original Greek for uh, a New Testament word. We can understand words by their idioms or, or how they're used in a sentence. And a great way to learn is the practical application of, of how we use words as well. Uh, have you ever wanted to be someone else? Have you ever wanted to be a, a rock star or, or a movie star or, or, or a pro athlete or, or a millionaire? As we study grace tonight, I want us to be one of two people tonight. Both of them, if you'd like. I'd like us to be Sylvanus and a pilgrim of the dispersion. That's what I want us to be tonight. Sylvanus or a pilgrim of the dispersion. Well, who are they? And who is, who is Sylvanus? Well, Sylvanus was written about by Peter in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 12. And he carried the letter by, by Peter to the pilgrims of the 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 1 dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Or he was the secretary that wrote for Peter. Let's read uh, 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 12 together and see why I want us to be Sylvanus or one of the pilgrims of the dispersion. Verse 12, By Silvanus, our faithful brother, as I consider him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. Silvanus could have been Paul's emenuensis or, or secretary, or he could have been the mailman that delivered this letter to all these places, or both. But notice that he was a faithful brother doing his part to communicate the grace of God to the pilgrims. And this is what I want for everyone, that he and the pilgrims, they stood in the true grace of God. True grace why I picked this verse to start. Peter describes true grace. And we're going to look at that tonight in Peter. And that's, how we, that's what we want to know. We want to know the definition of grace. What is grace? What is true grace? What is biblical grace? The English etymology or the history of the word grace as a noun or a verb is from the Middle English Grace, which is from the Old French, which is from the Latin word gratia, which is from the Latin root word gracious, or the, our meaning we would say pleasing. That's its root, that's its 
history. There are 11 noun definitions of the English word grace and three verbal definitions of the English word grace. So how do we know if the word grace that we've just read in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 12 doesn't mean that the pilgrim stood in a short prayer of blessing or thanksgiving said before or after a meal? How do we know that's not the grace that's being talked about? That's a, that's a definition of grace. I think it's number 10. It's definition number 10 of grace. An English idiom, to say grace. It's where we, it's where we get that, that, that from, that we say a short prayer before or after a meal. Or why doesn't it mean one of the three goddesses of Greek mythology, one of the three graces? That's another definition of, of grace. We must continue to look at its history. And by God's grace, we are given a little help in this area. The New Testament, of course, was written in Greek. Greek is still a language, but just like we don't speak in Old English today or the French don't speak in Old French today, the Greeks don't speak in Old Greek today. One of my preaching school instructors told our class, and I have verified this with others, that the Greek New Testament was written in what was an Old Greek called Koine Greek. And just like Old English and Old French, this Old Greek is not spoken anymore. It's a dead language. It's not spoken anymore. But that's good for us because the, 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 the words used then did not have as much baggage attached to them as, as what they mean today. Even though today their, their, their meaning may have changed, uh, they, they still have a similarity, such as the word pastor. The, the world is trying to change that word to, to fit the concept, which takes me back to the importance of what Mr. Bryan said again. Far too many of the world's problems are caused by the fact that we insist on applying our own meaning to words. When really we should look at how was that word used? We've got to look at its analogy and we must look at its context before we can understand what it means. These Koine Greek words had different meanings too, but they're meanings that, that must be derived from the analogy and the context that are firmly set in the context of the first century. This helps us in our quest to understand this vital word, New Testament word, because the playing field has now been narrowed and we are concerned with how the writer use the word in scriptures. We're going to see how Peter used the word in, in, in the letter of First Peter. I was pleased to know that my child was exposed to this word in Greek just two weeks ago by her instructor, Christopher Wiles. It took just a moment and a quick matching game on a piece of paper, and my child knew the Greek word for grace, which is Charis. I'm trying to roll the R there. That's the way the pronunciation guide told me to say it. But Charis. Charis. You can say it that way. Charis. Charis. I can't roll the R. Sorry. Charis. This New Testament word has various uses. But that's the word, the New Testament word for grace. The Greek word for grace. This New Testament word has various uses, but not as many as the inflated English word does. But there, there are compatible understandings. The word charis could be understood objectively and subjectively. As you see on the screen there, objectively it's concerned with, with an object given. Uh, it's the reason why the term grace to many means a gift. 
a gift that's given because it is it's something that is, that is given. I could give a party and it would be a gracious party full of pleasure, full of delight. Grace is applied to beauty as well. Luke chapter 2 verse 40. Uh, it's applied to a graceful act. Uh, 1 2 Corinthians chapter 8 verse 6. It's applied to graceful speech. Luke chapter 4 verse 22 and Colossians chapter 4 and verse 6. Our New Testament word grace can also be understood subjectively or, 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 something, given or, or something given in the mind. Something that you have in, in the mind. Such as uh, the, the, the part of... of the giver of grace, their, their friendly way. They have a gracious way in which they give something. Their, their goodwill is the way it's translated in Acts chapter 7, verse 10. But this also applies especially to the, to the divine favor or grace of God, Acts chapter 14, verse 26. W.E. Vine says this, that, that in this respect there is a stress on the freeness and universality of grace. Grace has a universalness and a freeness about it when it's used with God. Sometimes to understand a word, it's best to look at its opposites. Uh, that's another way you can understand a word. And, and Paul writes this way in Romans chapter 4 where grace is in contrast with debt. Or in Romans chapter 11 verse 6 where grace is in contrast with, with works. We can understand that, that grace is really the opposite of, of works and the opposite of debt. There's another objective sense. The effect of grace. The spiritual state of grace. Of those who have experienced grace, and this is the definition that we will spend the balance of our time on. I know this may seem tedious, but understanding a word like this, understanding a word like grace will help us when we apply it to the really important areas of our life like salvation. The state of grace is the true grace that the pilgrim stood in in 1 Peter chapter 1. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 12, the state of grace is the true grace. It's, it's what we want to understand. As Christians, we, under, we want to understand this, this state of grace, this true grace. When we understand where we're growing, where we're going, we're more likely to understand how to get there. You know, if I told you that I wanted to drive to Portland, if I asked you to give me a ride to Portland, most all of you would say, okay, I can do that. But if we got up here to, I don't know, say McDonald's, and I said, oh no, keep on going, because I want to go to Portland, Oregon. Uh, well, you might have a little problem there. Yeah, well, I, yeah, you, you didn't define, well, you didn't seek it out either. You didn't ask me. I just, I just told you I wanted to go to Portland. You didn't ask me which Portland. So when we seek to understand things like this, most all of you would say that you would give me a ride to Portland, but not Portland, Oregon. Before you say yes, you should understand what Portland I meant and see, here is the problem. So many want grace, but they don't know where grace is. That's a problem. Look at, look at Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Now many have wrongly applied a definition of grace that's not here. They have applied, they, they have had this concept of grace in their mind and they have applied it to this verse and that concept and definition of grace is not found here. 
A grace that says there's nothing you have to do or even can do. Just lay back and let grace work. That's a concept of grace that many people have. But that's not the case. In this verse we learn that in salvation both God and man have a part. God's part is that He provides a way of salvation. It is the gift of God which He does by His grace. Here the definition we we look at for grace is unmerited favor. In other words, we didn't do anything to deserve this plan of salvation. God gave it to us so that we could be saved from our lost condition. Man's part, man's part in this is to accept the salvation which God so freely offers to all men through faith. That's our part in this. God has a part and we have a a part. Silvanus was a faithful brother and the pilgrims stood in true grace. And what does that mean? Well, let's look at 1 Peter. If you would, if you have your Bibles, turn to the, your Bibles to 1 Peter and follow along with me. I'll have it on the screen as well. How, we, how Peter uses grace to help us define what God wants us to know. And knowing this will help us stand in true grace as well. In 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 1, The letter states, Peter is the author and the recipients are the pilgrims scattered over a large area. And in verse 2 he says to these pilgrims, grace to you and peace be multiplied. Now this according to various scholars was a mode of greeting to the Greeks and to the Jews. Uh, He he wanted grace to the Greeks and, and peace to the Jews. But Peter doesn't give this greeting to just anyone. This greeting is so deep. This greeting that he gives here in these first two verses of of 1 Peter chapter 1 are so deep. He calls these pilgrims, the one who stand in true grace, he calls them elect according to the foreknowledge of God and knows who was going to be saved. God knows who was going to be saved. It was a choosing or an election with only one vote cast. God's, God's vote. God is, it's those in sanctification of the Spirit for or because of their obedience. They're coming in contact with the blood of Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 7. It is to these and these only that Peter gives grace or favor to. To the elect. These are the saved. Look at verse 10 of the same of the same chapter, verse 1. Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. And verse 11 says, they searched for the time and it was revealed, verse 12, that the grace wouldn't be to them, it wouldn't be to the prophets, but to us they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. We, we know the gospel is God's power for salvation, Romans chapter 1, verse 16. And so this grace that came to us by the gospel to us was the gospel and our, our obedience to it made us one of the elect. And here we see it. Here we see that it is salvation that equals grace. And grace equals salvation. And then look at verse 13 
of First Peter chapter one. Therefore, gird up the loin loins of your mind. We could, we would say, tighten up. All right, tighten up. Be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And it, 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 in other words, what he's saying here is to hold on, hold on tightly. You you really haven't seen seen it all yet. You haven't seen it all yet. If we have if we have this hope. If we have this hope, 1 John 3, verses 1 through 3, that Jesus Christ is coming back, we will be purified just as He is pure. And more favor will be brought, more grace will be brought when Jesus comes. So, right now, Pilgrim, chapter 2 and verse 2, like a baby, desire the pure milk of the Word so that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted the Lord is gracious. There, there was something that, they, that they, they had in their mouths. It was the Word. It's how the, these elected pilgrims or, or anyone is given God's grace. And in chapter 3, Peter talks to husbands and wives. But look at what he says about the both of them in, in chapter 3, verse 7. Husbands and wives are heirs together of the grace of life. Here he's, he's writing to Christian husbands. And he's writing to, to Christian wives. Not only is, the, is life a gift, life is a, is a gift, but eternal life is a gift. And here's how you should treat one another. This is how you should treat each other. So that your, your prayers aren't hindered. And then he says in, in chapter 4, in verse 10, and we learn that God's grace, true grace, is manifold. Manifold. A manifold on a car is a place where numerous connections come together. God's grace goes forth to many different connections. To each and every one of us who have obeyed. And we must be good stewards of these connections. These pilgrims, you and I, are connected by our obedience to God's grace. And He is the manifold. He is the source of that grace. And by being watchful in our prayers, verse 7, verse 8, having a, a fervent love for one another, verse 9, being hospitable to one another, not grumbling with each other, ministering to one another, we are serving God's glory, not ours. And the rest of the chapter, we suffer for God's glory too. Peter addresses the shepherds of the church in, in 1 Peter chapter 5 and that we are sub to submit to our elders. Verse 5, submissive to one another. And look, be clothed with humility for God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. The humble get, right, get grace. The, the humble are the serious watchers in prayer. Those that are loving to one another without grumbling, without, with, with, without grumbling, submitting to their elders and to one another. And God, in chapter 5, verse 10, who is the giver of true grace, verse 12, will, verse 10, after you have suffered, now you may think, Christian, that, that you don't suffer anymore, and that's a lie. If you stand in true grace, you suffer. If you have not suffered, you have not stood up for the truth in a very long time. If
If you stand too close to the truth, you will suffer. You will. But after you have suffered mentally, physically, emotionally, monetarily, verse 10, the God of all grace who has called us to His eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, He will perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. And, and oh, I can't wait for that. Verse 11, to Him be the glory dominion, and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now this is a brief, brief account of, of true grace. And a person may be saved from his sins by the grace of God when they believe what God says and when they obey the gospel. It is true that man cannot work his way to heaven by his own works, but must work or accept God's plan to be saved. Philippians chapter 2 verse 12, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And, and part of God's plan is hearing Romans chapter 10 verses 14 through 17. And if you've heard, you're working God's plan. Part of God's plan is believing. John chapter 8 verse 24. Do you believe? Well, that's part of God's plan. If you believe, you are working God's plan. Part of God's plan given to us by His grace is repentance. Are you willing to renounce your sins and turn away from the lifestyle that you've been living? If you're ready to repent, Acts chapter 3, verse 19, you are working God's plan as well. It's God's plan. It's, it's by His grace. And part of God's plan of salvation is confessing others that Jesus, confessing before others that Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. And, and, and just as important as a part of, of God's plan, His grace through faith that one be baptized for the remission of their sins. Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Then you can be a faithful brother or sister and stand in the true grace of God. God's grace is offered to you now do not accept it in vain. You know what it is. You know how to get it. True grace. Come and get it right now. As together we stand and sing.